Well, Merry Christmas, beloved. Merry Christmas to you. I, I really enjoy this time of year. I really do. Um, maybe you're that way too. In part, there's lots of reasons, and I won't go through them, but in part because just the name of Jesus is kind of like all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, even in stores. <laughs> that, and it's in a good way, you know, because I, I hear the name of Jesus used in a bad way often, but now it's in a good way that I'm hearing it broadcast over the radio. I really get excited. It's kind of like this acute story when my... Uh, my daughter here, Ayla, was, I think, three years old, two or three years old. A song had come out, come out by Eric Clapton uh, called Layla. My daughter's name is Ayla, but she was only three. So every time it came on the radio, you know, Layla. You know the song? Got you on my knees, Layla, right? I can't sing, but I try. So she would go ballistic in a good way. She's like, they're saying my name. They're saying my name. And her twin brother, who would be sitting right next to her, they're not saying your name, Jordy. They're not saying your name. They're saying my name. And that, that enthusiasm, that excitement is, in some ways, how I feel when I hear the name of Jesus Christ, you know, just being broadcasted. Maybe you're that way, too. But, you know, over the years, I've heard people uh, attempt to... Um, describe in various ways what they think Christmas is all about. Maybe you've heard that too. Uh, So for instance, I've heard people say this, that Christmas is not about things, but about people. Have you ever heard that? That's probably a a pushback, I think, against commercialization of Christmas, right? So they want to make that emphasis, hey, it's not about the stuff, it's about the folks, all right? Uh, Similarly, they'll say something like this, it isn't it isn't what's under the Christmas tree that matters, but rather who is around it. Yeah, that's nice. You should try that one on your kids one Christmas morning. Hide all the presents. Have them come down. Try that out. See how that goes for you. Um, others say things like this. Uh, Christmas is about spending time with family and close friends, uh, or that it's a time to give and share or something along, or helping or serving others. You know what I'm talking about? Now, while all of those descriptions of what people think uh, Christmas is all about sound very nice, are very nice, they ultimately miss the mark by a mile. Beloved, as we've been singing about all morning, and I trust most of you would agree, Christmas is truly about the child, the babe who in perfect fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ or the Messiah was born to the Virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem approximately 2,000 years ago and was given that blessed name, Jesus. Amen. And by the way, not because his parents came up with the name. You know how you go through that process, parents of picking the name? They didn't pick his name. They were told by an angel of the Lord to give this child that name, Jesus. Concerning this wonderful birth of this most incredible child, the Word of God says this, probably familiar to you. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they consummated their marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Beloved, there was a, a supernatural conception, okay, within Mary's womb. It was an act of the Holy Spirit that had taken place. Uh, concerning that miraculous conception, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 35, says this, And the angel answered her, that is, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Picking back up in Matthew's account of this Christmas story, in verse 19, it goes on to say this, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, A divorce would be required in those times to break the betrothal. And he, as far as he was concerned, he thought that his uh, dear Mary had been unfaithful to him. She was pregnant. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. By the way, the name Jesus, or Yeshua in the Hebrew, it means The Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. That's the name of Jesus. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's referring to the prophet Isaiah, prophesied 700 years prior to this birth. And now he quotes that prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. So this wasn't like his middle name, like it's Jesus Emmanuel or something like that. His name was Jesus, that's what they called him, but he'll be known as God with us, this Jesus. Verse 24, when Jesus or Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. You've heard the story, right? Maybe you'll read it on Christmas morning. Beloved, to put it quite simply, as so many others have, the person of Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins, he is the reason for the season. It's that simple. His amazing birth is coming into the world as he did, according to the perfect, wonderful, and saving plan of God an event that the Bible tells us was celebrated by a multitude of the heavenly host or angelic beings in Luke chapter 2. That is what Christmas is really all about. Yeah, we get together as families. Yeah, we share gifts. Yeah, all that. But Jesus is what Christmas is really all about, beloved. But now listen. Behind the birth of Jesus Christ is the most sobering and significant truth that is important for us not to miss. And I feel like I don't even have to preach this message because Thomas and Wes were trying to preach it for me. 
than just the stuff that they were saying. Not on purpose or anything. It just works out like that. But we're going to do it anyway. There's a, there's a truth that we, beloved, need to, to reflect on. It's very good for us to reflect on every time we remember the incredible story of Christmas or celebrate Christmas or meditate on what Christmas is all about. And that truth revolves around a word, and the word is incarnation. Incarnation. And that's what I want to briefly, briefly talk to you about this morning and why I have titled this Christmas message, The Incarnation of the Son of God. The word incarnation is a term that is used by theologians to indicate that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He took on human flesh. So, to explain that just a a little more, because this is outside of our norm. I mean, this is not how we came into the world like this. Prior to coming into this world, prior to being miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as we just read about, the Son of God had one nature. One nature. A divine nature. He was... Almighty God, and still is, by the way. He was the second person and is the second person of the one triune God. But when he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, in that moment, the divine Son of God took on an additional nature, one that he had not had before an inferior nature to his own, I might add. A human one. Which means that while remaining fully God, in Mary's womb, he became fully man. Now, while we can't fully comprehend the complexity of all of that, I do believe it. I believe it. And so should you, if you don't, because... That is what the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God tells us, my friends. One writer commenting on the incarnation says this, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. What is the incarnation? It is simply the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus It is, I would venture to say, the greatest and most stunning miracle that has ever been or ever will be. But one might ask, well, why did the Son of God do this? Why did he do this? Why in the world did he come to earth in that way? Why the incarnation? Why did he take on human flesh? Why did God become a man? Why did the immortal take on mortality? Well, you may already know the answer. But before I attempt to answer that question, let's just first look at a verse from the Bible that is very clear about why Jesus came or was sent to the earth in the first place. I'm going to start there. 
which I believe in turn is going to help us begin to comprehend why the divine Son of God necessarily took on human flesh or why he came into this world as a baby conceived in the womb of Mary and born to her, okay? Which is what we celebrate at this time of year. So why did Jesus come to this earth? This is probably one of the most clearest passages in Scripture concerning the answer to that question. It's in 1 Timothy 1, 15. I taught a, did a Christmas message just on this passage alone one time. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes there. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Yeah, to save sinners. To save sinners. Another translation of the Bible puts it this way. Here is a saying that you can trust. You can trust this. It should be accepted completely. Even though many reject it, they shouldn't. They should accept it. They should receive it. They should embrace it. Christ Jesus came in the world to, what is it again, beloved? Save sinners. To save sinners. Beloved, according to this passage, he came into the world. He was born into this world. Why? To save or to rescue sinners. To save or rescue fallen human beings. People broken and ruined by sin. To rescue unrighteous people who are guilty before God. A holy God. But to rescue them from what? someone might say. Well, to rescue them from the coming judgment of God or His holy and just wrath that is coming against sinners. To rescue them from that, beloved. You know these passages are familiar to you. We went through them as we moved through the book of Romans, but in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says there, as it is written, none, how many? None is righteous, no, not one, not one. In God's sight, not even one individual is righteous. Farther on in that chapter, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, For all, how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All fall short of God's perfection. All fail to live up to God's divine standard. All, beloved. And as a result, all stand condemned before God and remain subject to his coming wrath at the final judgment. All, apart from Christ. A little further on in that fantastic book, Romans, Apostle Paul says this simply, for the wages of sin is death. It's death. Death. My friends, is what our sin deserves. Ultimately, separation from God forever. Beloved, people because of foolish pride or sinful rebellion may try to deny it, but all of humanity is in desperate need of a Savior. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because that's the truth. There is not one person in this world or in this room who is not not in need of being rescued from God's just judgment concerning sin. 
Not one. We all need to be rescued, my friends. But listen, the good news of the Bible is that God has not left the world without a Savior. Huh? Yeah, that's good news. He certainly could have. Huh? He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to send him. He could have let us all rot. And he would have been absolutely just to do it. Instead of doing that, though, the creator of humanity, according to his divine plan and because of his amazing grace and incomprehensible love, came into the world. He came into the world. Why? Yeah, you know what? Here's the answer. To save humanity from himself. To save humanity from himself. To save us from his righteous punishment that we all justly deserve as sinners before a holy God. He came to save us from himself. And that Jesus came into this world to save sinners is abundantly made clear in God's word. But why was the mighty Son of God sent into this world as a baby? What, if anything, does that have to do with his mission to rescue sinners? I mean, listen, why not just show up in all this divine might and power? Right? And somehow save us. <laughs> huh? This is very strange. At least on the surface, it seems very strange. If you didn't have the word of God, it would seem very, very strange because we wouldn't know the why. Why go through the process of taking on an additional nature, an inferior one? Huh? It'd be like you saying, I think I'm going to take on the nature of an ant. Why would you do such a thing? I'm going to save those little ants. What? <laughs> Couldn't you just pick them up and save them? I mean, you're mighty and big compared to them. And we know that, that taking on this nature is exactly what he did because that truth is taught to us in the word of God. As an example, I could turn to many places, but as an example, a very familiar section of Scripture in John, the scripture says this, verse 1, John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word is a reference to Jesus Christ. And the word was with God, and the word was what? God. He was in the beginning with God. This is the triune God. All things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then just a few verses later in verse 14 the Apostle John writes this, and the Word became, what? Flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But again, again I ask, why did the Son of God actually become flesh? Why? Why? Well, we clearly know from the word of God that he came into the world to save sinners, right? 
Are we good so far? That's why he came into the world. That's clear. Well, guess what, my friends? In order to do that, in order to be humanity's savior, our savior, in order to redeem fallen humanity to or according to God's mind-blowing plan of salvation, because that's what it is, he, the Son of God, would need to genuinely become one of us. One of us. Why? So that he might truly be our substitute. Our substitute. On the cross. And there, take upon himself all of our sin and guilt. And actually undergo the just penalty which he didn't deserve because he was sinless but that we all definitely deserve because we are sinful so the son of god who became flesh was able then to suffer and die in our place as he, the God-man, took upon himself the full weight of and penalty for our sin so that all who would turn to him in faith and look to and trust in him as their perfect substitute would be counted completely forgiven through Christ and saved, rescued from God's coming wrath. That's why. That is why. Listen, just to continue to make that point, here's another passage that many Christians are very familiar with, but it's really impossible to explain apart from the incarnation. And that, the fact that the Son of God, as we were saying, took on human flesh, which is the Christmas story, It's in the Gospel of Mark there, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The writer there says, Mark says, For even the Son of Man, this is a title that Jesus used for himself, really a humbling title. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, right? And how did he serve? And to give his what? Life as a ransom for many. One translation puts the last part of that. He came to give his life as the price for setting many people free. But listen, beloved, how can the immortal, divine Son of God possibly give his life or die on our behalf or experience death for us? How can he do that? I'll tell you how. You know the answer now, right? He took on human flesh by actually becoming becoming a man as he did by being born to Mary. By taking on this additional nature, he was able to do exactly what Mark says, to give his life as a ransom for humanity to set them free. One writer says this, without the incarnation, 
Christ could not really die. And the cross would be meaningless. Let me say it this way. If there was no genuine death at the cross, then there was no genuine resurrection. That's another holiday we celebrate, right? At Easter. That's the coming one. Wes got up here. He was trying to, again, preach my message. But he's talking about birth and death and birth and death, right? Remembering that, keeping the two together. If there was no death, there was no resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, then there was no victory over death and sin. And if there was no victory over death and sin, then there is no salvation. And it began with the incarnation. Huh? Let me share another passage with you, and there's a, a lot in it that we could talk about, and we're not. I just want to focus in on, and don't let your mind get too distracted by some of the stuff that may not be familiar to you. I'll try to simplify it as best I can. I just want to pay attention to the statement concerning Christ, the statement that Christ made at the very end of this passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. There the writer of Hebrews writes, The law, the Mosaic law, the law given to Israel, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, how did he come, beloved? Incarnated. He took on flesh. He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a what? Body you prepared for me. Through the law that God gave to Israel, he had established that he had established or he had established for the nation a sacrificial system for their sin. This is what the writer is talking about. An innocent, I'm simplifying, an innocent animal would be sacrificed or have its life taken in place of the sinner. But as the writer of Hebrews points out, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to permanently take away sin. The sacrificial system of the law that Israel practiced could not save the sinner or permanently remove the guilt of their sin. But rather, the sacrificial system pointed to the seriousness of sin. A lot of dead animals, beloved. A lot of blood. It pointed to the seriousness of sin. It was a reminder of their sin done over and over and over again. And also it pointed to our desperate need for a Savior and prepared the world for the one whose death would permanently remove the penalty of sin for all who would believe. Beloved, Christ needed a human body. He needed a human body in order to be that sin 
bearing sacrifice that would fully satisfy God's justice. That would save sinners, that would permanently remove the penalty for their sins by sacrificing his human life in place of them for their sins by taking the penalty upon himself as our perfect and acceptable to God representative. That's the incarnation. That's the incarnation. That's the reason. Why would you do that? Because I came to save you, and here's how I have to do it. The last book of the Bible says this, giving praise to Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse Five there, the Apostle John writes to him, he's speaking about Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How, beloved? By his blood. God doesn't bleed. But he did when he took on flesh. He did when he took on flesh. By his blood means by his life. He gave up his life. How does God give up his life? He takes on human flesh. He takes on human flesh. Beloved, standing over the sweet baby Jesus. You know, you've seen the manger scenes, right? There seems to be less of them now. I don't know what's going on. There used to be more. Maybe because people steal the baby Jesus. I don't know. But that picture, that beautiful picture, and it is a beautiful one, standing over that, you must always remember, is the cross. The Son of God was born into this world. He took on flesh that he might truly die for mankind in our place as our substitute, taking upon himself all our sin and shame in order to eternally save or rescue every person who would truly turn to and trust in him. That, my dear friends, is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had this morning. I, I thank you for this time of year. Father, there's a lot that goes on at this time of year in our lives and among our families. And in the course of all that, we can easily be distracted. Father, even in remembering the birth of Jesus Christ, I, I pray that we look beyond just that. We look a little bit deeper below the surface. This one was born to die. This one is the Son of God who took on flesh that he might die in the place of the sinner, that he might suffer for him so that he, the one who would believe, would not have to suffer for their sin, that he might be set free, that he might be saved. Father, that is what makes Christmas amazing and worth celebrating and singing 
loud about and rejoicing in. And Father, may we not forget it and may we preach it. Father, I pray you give us all a chance for someone to come up and ask us, so what do you think Christmas is all about? And I pray that we can tell them the truth. And that through that truth, you might save another sinner, bring them to yourself, reconcile them, make them right with you, God, through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I pray all of this in his name. Amen.